Welcome to Rewired, a podcast where we discuss our own journeys with an eating disorder and how we rewired our brains away from an ED mindset to full recovery. We will also be joined by inspirational guests who share their experience, knowledge and advice to give hope and show that recovery is possible. Hi, I'm Sophia. And I'm Meg. Welcome to the Rewired podcast. Hi Hope, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. So for our listeners, it's quite interesting. We initially arranged this podcast about a month and a half ago, but you had an unexpected surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's with us now. <laughs> yes, he is here. So if anyone hears any interesting noises it's the baby not not one of us <laughs> so he's yeah he's a month and a half old now yeah five weeks today so he was literally born the day that we were planning to do the podcast yeah. <laughs> oh okay so I really want to talk to you about all things motherhood um but before we get started could you just introduce yourself because you've done some amazing things in the eating disorder recovery space thanks um so yeah my name is Hope Berger and I uh, I've written some books on eating disorders, but predominantly spend my time kind of campaigning now. So split my time between working in schools, running workshops for young people on things like body image, eating disorders, exercise addiction. Um, and then I also work a lot with the government. So I founded a campaign a couple of years ago called Dump the Scales, which was all around making sure that people could access treatment and support regardless of what their BMI was. And kind of off the back of that now do a lot of that extra campaigning work looking particularly in the UK at issues around funding around stigma and one of my big things at the moment is obviously pushing for that kind of intervention and early access to treatment but also trying to get people to understand that eating disorders are kind of there in everyday life and they're often hidden kind of completely in plain sight so trying to educate people on that as a factor and also trying to get the government to tackle this as a matter of urgency and not wait any longer. That's so tough. It's amazing work that you're doing. Um, so in how are the campaigns getting on? You've done hashtag dump the scales and yeah. hashtag change the story. I actually yeah. signed up to the petition. So okay. you still you can still sign up to the petition at the moment, can't you? Yeah, no, you can. Yeah. So uh, dump the scales. Uh, so yeah, I launched it a couple of years ago and it was really, really kind of had loads of momentum initially, I think. Like we've got a lot of debates in Parliament, kind of a lot of high level discussions going on. But you'd kind of always get to this point where you'd kind of lay all the issues out and then you wouldn't get that final commitment, which was like one of my pet hates. So I was like, this is getting really frustrating. Um, just before the pandemic, I took the petition to uh, number 10 Downing Street and kind of delivered it there. And although I think doing stuff like that is a bit of a marker, it doesn't really achieve a lot. It's kind of just like actually we're doing this to kind of make a point. But off the back of that, managed to get a couple of kind of other high level meetings, again, kind of keeping the conversation going. Then the pandemic hit, and as we all know, it was really challenging for so many people. And we saw this massive increase in people struggling with eating disorders and exercise addictions, and the kind of treatment and support just wasn't out there at all. And so at that point, I kind of realized that whilst the Dump the Scales campaign kind of is something that is my real passion and something that I'm going to kind of continue to work on, um, I kind of wanted to expand it a little bit further. And so began working with other experts, kind of bringing together people to look at the kind of issues around funding, around access to support, around prevention, around early intervention, um, and also just kind of trying to, again, bring that conversation out into the open. I think so much of the time with eating disorders, 
it's so important to see the realities of how awful they are to live with and kind of all of that negativity. But also a big thing for me is actually trying to change the story so that we have this hope at the end of it because people do fully recover and people can get better, people can go on to live their lives, but we often don't hear that. So again, kind of pushing a lot of that with these other experts. And it's, it's been good, I think, the last couple of months kind of meeting frequently with special advisors at number 10. But obviously kind of overnight, we've had a, another massive upheaval in the UK with Prime Minister kind of resigning and there's gonna be a whole reshuffle. And I do sometimes feel that frustration when there's a reshuffle that you're kind of back to square one with some of this stuff. And it's then kind of starting out again, kind of meeting people, kind of working on it. And I think for me, I just, I just need that proper commitment. And once we have that, we can then hold people to account, but that feels like the sticking point still. Wow, I love your passion. Hope, what keeps you going? What keeps you fighting for this? Is it like your own experience or is it from people that you speak to on social media? What, what keeps you going with it? I guess a little bit of both actually. So um, so from lived experience, I, I had an eating disorder when I was growing up and kind of had really good treatment the first time around, but when I relapsed, I didn't get treatment and because I wasn't underweight. And it was in that moment that I just felt this complete injustice and I was so angry at the system and so angry at like society. So I was like, this is wrong on so many levels. And for me actually kind of experiencing that firsthand and seeing how awful and horrible it is to live with an eating disorder and then get stuck in those points in recovery, like learning to sit with the uncertainty, kind of shifting all of that fear was kind of, I guess the initial driving factor. But then the more I started talking about things, the more people I met who've been through similar things the more people who were in that sticky point where it's like you don't see a way out where you just feel so helpless and so afraid and it was at that point that then all of that kind of motivated me to be like actually this isn't how people should be living their lives like I really believe that regardless of what someone's BMI regardless of if they're kind of out there doing stuff they need to be able to get treatment and have that support to get well and I think now probably also having a child although a very new one it is again that driving factor that actually we can't have this for future generations like it's been going on for far too long and we have to we have to just change it um but I say all of this and you call me on probably a good day <laughs> on some days I find it really relentless and really frustrating and it feels impossible to kind of shift people's mindsets and I do think that's kind of normal with campaigning to kind of have those moments where you're just like why don't they understand like why don't they care um but then always, I think, coming back to the basics when that happens and being like, actually, this is why I'm doing it. And as long as we can shift a couple of mindsets, then eventually stuff will start to click into place. Yeah, that's yeah, it must be so challenging. It must really. Yeah, it must really feel relentless. And but honestly, thank you for everything you're doing in it for, on behalf of so many people, because you know, you're opening doors for people who are really finding it challenging at the moment. And that's what hashtag dump the scale is, is the idea that um, not to base the eating disorder diagnosis on somebody's BMI. Um, because I think some people, they have this, I had a client actually last week who was going for her first session and she was really worried. They would tell her that, no, you're not sick enough. And that's just so heartbreaking, isn't it? It's just ridiculous. It's, it's yeah and it is a massive thing I think within the kind of eating disorder community itself like we have this idea that in order to start recovery perhaps you have to be a certain size and it's like if we're putting that stigma on ourselves then actually society is going to amplify it and make it even worse so I do think it is really difficult and I think also like we know from like my own experience but also from like working with others and stuff like that guilt you feel when you initially kind of admit that something's going on and you reach out for that support and then if you're told oh you don't look like you have an eating disorder or you're not thin enough the kind of shame then gets even more exacerbated 
And you're just then sitting with all of those feelings and you're like, this is not right. And I think for me, because it takes such bravery for people to reach out for support, that's why, again, you have to have that equal access to services. We wouldn't turn someone away with a broken leg being like, come back in a couple of weeks when it's worse. We'd get in there immediately. And that's what we should be doing with eating disorders. Definitely. And the work that you're doing in schools is brilliant as well for doing that early preventative work. And I think it's so important. I'm actually before I became a recovery coach, I was a primary school teacher. And so I really feel passionately about that, that the education needs to start with children because we concentrate so much of our efforts on physics or biology or the planets in space, which are all really important, but it's so important also to teach your children about eating disorders and how to sit with their emotions that they're feeling and how to work through them. They're literally life skills that we don't maybe spend enough time on, I don't think at all. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think within that as well, like that whole messaging around kind of food and lifestyle as well is key within that, because there's so much kind of so many dangerous messages out there at the moment. I know, like, I'm sure you've come across a lot of those kind of physical education resources. They're probably like once a year we see kind of batting around social media and you're like, this is not right. Like people shouldn't be telling you to do this many press outs if you eat a pizza and stuff like that. And it's, it's that messaging as well that whilst probably doesn't cause eating disorders, it definitely exacerbates them in certain situations. Definitely. And it, it adds a morality to it because there's certainly this idea of sugar being or different mm. foods being bad, some foods being good. And it's teaching children at such an impressionable age about the morality of food, yeah. whereas we need to just teach them that all food has a space um, in their life, you know. Um, so can I ask, going back to Joshua, how, how are you finding motherhood and how has it impacted your kind of recovery journey and relationship with food and exercise yeah um good question so honestly it feels a little bit like a minefield in places um so I found I guess starting with pregnancy so I found that quite challenging um I think I am I am quite a physically active person I travel a lot with work like and then the tiredness started setting in I really struggled with that I was also then having this kind of anxiety over kind of oh should I be going for that walk or should I be resting at home and it turns into this kind of battle where you're trying to work out what you actually want to do and then whether it's kind of the eating disorder trying to kind of pull you back in and I think on top of that for me a lot of my illness was wrapped up in kind of emotions so not wanting to sit with the kind of heightened emotions and really struggling with that and when you're pregnant and you just have a child obviously your emotions feel like they're all over the place and I felt really really uncertain about kind of what my future was going to look like kind of what was happening things like that so definitely like in those moments I had to be really really kind of strict with myself and be like actually do you know what I cannot go back to those behaviors they don't help they might feel like they do in the short term but in the long term it's not going to do any kind of anything at all um and I think the other thing actually just on the kind of pregnancy thing is I do think, and this goes for kind of before childbirth and afterwards, there's a lot of messaging out there which unintentionally is kind of promoting eating disorders. Like you can't eat certain foods, you've got to lose this much weight, you've got to put this much weight on and you're constantly kind of being judged on that. And I definitely found that in places kind of quite difficult to work out kind of where I was at with it. Um, and then I guess since having him, um, I think the hardest part for me has probably been firstly like having to rest a lot of the time, um, which I really embraced for the first couple of weeks. Um, we spent some time in uh, intensive care afterwards. And I think for me, it created kind of this environment where I felt like I was being really looked after. And so I then didn't feel like anything was going to go wrong. And I felt really safe and secure in that. 
And then when I got home, you then have to start sitting with a lot of the guilt and the uncertainty around not exercising, around not even leaving the house, kind of eating all day, like that sort of stuff, learning to listen to your body. And that shift for me, I think, has been a really, really important one. But it does feel hard in places. And then I think, although eating disorders, like mine definitely wasn't about my body, a lot of those feelings and emotions have then been projected onto my body. So kind of dealing with that change in your body size where you're like, actually, this is quite an interesting time. And like, how can I really communicate what's going on when people look at me and think I look fine um, as well? And then also the final thing is the breastfeeding. Um, for those people who breastfeed, it's like you have to you have to eat more, which is what it is. But if you haven't had an eating disorder, I don't think people really overthink it. But when you've had an eating disorder, you, you do overthink it a lot of the time. And for me, I think whilst I was really lucky because I had some really good uh, perinatal mental health support, which included um, a dietitian. Again, there's been so much of a focus within the work I do with a dietitian on kind of calories. And I'm like, that's just not really helpful. Like, actually, that's that's not how you like. That's not how I do things. That's not how I want to do things moving forward. Um, so I think in a positive way, I'm, what I'm really hoping is I think I've got like a couple more steps to go in my own recovery to be fully well. And I'm probably putting far too much pressure on myself to kind of use this as a bit of a chance to be like, actually, this will this will shift it. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. And I think you just I feel so grateful that I'm able to get pregnant. And I've had a baby after what I've been through. But then, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a mind. <laughs> yeah, and it's really hard, isn't it? Because you're so grateful and you're just so in awe of your little baby and you're so grateful for your body being able to, you know, create him. But mm -hmm. then you're also struggling and it's OK to kind of have both of those at the same time. But yeah, sometimes it doesn't feel like you can talk about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you were talking about like your relation, you know, your dietitian talking to you about calories. Did were you quite open with the professionals around you about struggling with an eating disorder? Um, yeah, so when I did my first appointment, I think I was so scared, honestly, yeah. about getting sick again that I kind of went through it in a very matter-of-fact way and was like, this is my past, like, this is what happened, this is where I'm at with it. That's um, amazing though. That's so great. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's really I do think in pregnancy the one thing that made it easier to do that was because I felt like I was doing it for my baby so you feel like less you're doing it for yourself which probably isn't the right way around it I don't know I think sometimes when you could sometimes you feel like you can't do it for yourself because mm. I don't know like I think it's a self-esteem thing and I think yeah. you you'll start doing it for your baby but I started kind of getting better because I wanted to get pregnant but then as you're getting better all the other incentives come in and you realize you actually want to stay good for yourself too but sometimes yeah. that first step you need to do it for somebody else I think that's fair enough yeah um yeah but I did I was really and I think that's one thing I learned during the pregnancy is one other thing I learned I learned a lot <laughs> but yeah. was that you have to put yourself first yes and for me it was like actually being quite pushy in places actually do you know what I really need to have this extra support like um and I was very I was really lucky with with that and I wondered I often wonder like because I live in Bristol whether actually the perinatal mental health like support was just much better here actually like and being under consultant-led care like all of that I think it just really really helped in the long term for me I think you know the journey of being a mum is just so challenging and with an eating disorder on top but I agree I think sometimes it brings up any of the issues still kind of leftover from the eating disorder and you yeah. challenging them and working through them is only going to make you stronger in your recovery and that's an amazing thing yeah I think so well. and I think yeah and I think because too many people I think and I definitely did made a lot of mistakes in recovery and kind of settled with where I was at so yeah trying to use this as a bit of a chance to feel like actually 
like you said, like things can shift and I do really think they will. Yeah, you talked about that in your book, actually, this idea of that halfway house recovery and how we can kind of coast along in life in that in-between stage. And I definitely, I was also there for a little while because you can kind of feel like you're getting the best of both worlds, you know, but it really, to me, it always felt like you're almost getting the worst of both worlds because you're not surrendering completely to your eating disorder. So you're still kind of got that guilt and then you can't completely join in in life. So why do you think so many people kind of get stuck in that place and how can they work through it to get to full recovery? I think it, a lot of it comes back to the fear of what the full recovery is going to look like. Yes. And I think for some people, it's the fear of the weight change, the fear of what people will think, that fear of judgment, and also the fear of having more emotions to then sit with and kind of work through as well. And you don't know what the other side of recovery is going to look like, like none of us do. And so it's a massive risk for people. And so I think they settle because it's like, actually, the risk seems too big. And so for me, my way of starting to shift that, I think, was firstly just like being really honest with myself about it and trying not to be honest with people around me, like realizing, do you know what? Like I am a little bit stuck in this. I, I don't know what to do. Like, how can I start to shift that? And then practically was um, I made a list of all of my fear foods and then began working through my fear foods, kind of sitting with all of that, like horribleness around it. Um, and then also um, working out kind of a lot more about the eating disorder. So le- learning more about my own recovery, learning about my own history, And I think for me, that really helped because then when I felt triggered by something, I could then kind of speak up a little bit more. Um, And then the other thing which someone said to me probably about two years ago, um, a very blunt question, but was like, what do you want your future to look like? Mm. And it was this real wake up moment. It was actually like, do you know what? I don't want to have a future where I can't go out with my friends last minute for dinner or I'm too afraid to go to a cafe and have a slice of cake with like my my children or my like my family, Um, like anything like that. And I was like, do you know what? I need to shift this. And I think... Something I've been thinking a lot about recently, and actually particularly with schools, is I think that so many of us go through life and we create these beliefs around food and around exercise, and we have all these strict habits and rules. And a lot of it comes from society telling us to do a certain thing or be a certain type of person. And yes, they do serve a purpose to some degree, and they maybe help people to feel that security. But actually, whether people have had an eating disorder or not, I think we all have to make a decision whether we're going to let those rules kind of dictate our lives. Um, and so often when I'm in schools, I'm kind of getting kids to think, actually, do you want to have this future where you are calorie counting and like managing everything? Or do you want to have this future that feels really scary and like just so unachievable, but it's possible to get to? And Hope, is, is it in schools at the moment? Is this idea, are children got calories and this exercise kind of addiction? Is this in their minds? Is it a primary school thing or a secondary school thing? Um, yeah so I think it yeah I'd say where I'm seeing it is kind of the end of primary school and then a lot in secondary schools I went into um a school the other day and pretty much every single student had the my fitness pal app thing wow. and I literally was like this is ridiculous and I think because now in the UK obviously all the calories are being labeled on menus that's probably fueling quite a bit of that as well so we're normalizing it even more but it's scary how many people are so like preoccupied in that and everyone has excuses for it it's interesting like you ask someone why they're doing it and they all have about 100 excuses of why it's normal and why it's okay to be doing it and I just don't think people really fully understand understand it and probably also don't fully understand kind of calories in itself anyway and how they just don't show the health of anything no absolutely and also there's so much discrepancy in them they're not an accurate number of something you know it's so such a precise number but the range of what a calorie in a food can be is really really different um wow that's that's amazing isn't it and it's really sad at the same time that it's kind of hitting children at so much younger 
whatever age. Um, so going on to your book. So I started reading your book one night when I was trying to get sleep, the one you are free. Um, even if you don't feel like it and honestly hope two and a half hours I was still reading it I could not put it down I absolutely loved it and I cannot recommend it higher enough um, there was just it was just so many practical exercises it was just beautifully written there was gorgeous like prayers and interviews um, with different guests and it was loads of tips and your advice and wisdom was amazing um, so definitely a theme throughout it which is maybe what kept me reading was the idea of faith for you and how it's been such an important part of your recovery and um, because it certainly was for me as well so could you talk a little bit about how it supported you yeah no definitely so um so I guess firstly so I grew up going to church um and went to church up until I was about 17 but during that kind of 17 year period I went through a period of sexual abuse for around nine months which happened within the church and it was after that that whilst I struggled to be in that environment, I really liked the social aspect and just wanted to kind of see whether actually something would shift or what would ever kind of what would happen around that. Um, but when I was admitted to treatment um, for an eating disorder when I was 17, I kind of was ruled myself that I would never go back. I was I was really angry at the whole kind of institution. I was angry at God, like just so frustrated that this sort of thing happens. And I wanted to be well, but I wasn't well. And I spent kind of the next, I don't know, 10 years or so kind of not really ever thinking about it, occasionally maybe getting frustrated, like, you know, everyone says the odd prayer now and then, um, and then ended up going on an alpha course uh, in 2019, um, just before the pandemic. And during that time, I think having the space to ask all of my questions, like work through things really kind of thoroughly was really, really helpful. And it was at that point that I decided, actually, do you know what? I do believe in this. I don't have all the answers but there's something about it. And for me now, my faith is a really big part of my life. And actually I was thinking this morning, um, I'm aware that I've been quite irritable recently. And I think one of the reasons for that is I haven't kind of spent that time kind of journaling, kind of spending time with God, like listening to music. Um, and obviously like having a child, you probably, I don't know, I have to work out my new routine and structure, whatever that's gonna look like. But it's those things that actually did keep me going. And particularly in the pandemic, when I was finding stuff challenging and was sitting with emotions and wasn't really sure what to do, I'd often kind of just be listening to kind of church music in my kind of headphones or journaling, kind of talking to God, things like that, which for me, it's, it's just such a crucial part of things. And I think obviously there is still some frustration. I, I think like the fact that I'm not fully well yet, it does annoy me at times, but actually kind of learning to kind of sit with that kind of, I guess that, yeah, that kind of unsettling feeling that at some point it probably will happen, but actually I've just got to keep going until it does. Um, and I think as well, like being part of a community for me was, was always really helpful. Um, and yeah, finding people that kind of believe the same things, uh, just, yeah, all of that really helps you work through all of those questions even more. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's during the harder times that you kind of strengthen your relationship with your faith, isn't it? And it's amazing then you've got that in the harder times to kind of turn to. Um, that's really beautiful. Um, so as I said, there were some amazing practical exercises throughout. Could you give the listeners maybe a couple that would be helping them to turn like motivation into action? Because sometimes we have the best of intentions that we're going to recover, we're going to get better. And then we go to the kitchen cupboard and we just can't do it. Or, you know, you get to the restaurant and you just can't order the food. So is there anything they can do in the moment to kind of overcome that fear? Yeah, um, good question. I feel like I should probably know the book better to be like, oh, this is exactly what I said. So I'm probably not even going to say ones that are from the book, potentially. <laughs> That's fine. Um, 
So I think, okay, the first <laughs> no. thing um, I think is knowing what your motivations are. So knowing why you're getting well and making that side kind of so much better and more appealing than the fear. So for me, my big motivations were I wanted to go traveling one day. I wanted to get a job. I wanted to have a baby. I wanted spontaneity back. And it was those things that in those moments when I was kind of just so gripped by fear and maybe standing in front of the fridge, like, I don't know if I can do this to actually be like, right now, this is what I want. It's going to feel hard, but this is the kind of future. And these are my motivations and reasons for doing that. And I think on that, people's motivations will change throughout life. And like mine definitely do. And that's okay. But sometimes I think if you're in those sticking points and lacking that kind of turning into action, kind of making lists of those, having those to hand can be really, really helpful as well. Um, I think a big one for me um, is knowing kind of how to interrupt my thought process. And I say this and I'm not always great at it, but I think so much of the time when you have an eating disorder, you can kind of sit down at a meal and your mind can go into this complete and utter turmoil and it can just, it starts off maybe thinking and fixating on the food. And then for, before you know it, you're down like a rabbit hole from like six, seven years ago, something that somebody said to you and you're just feeling like there's something really wrong with you. And like I said, I'm not great at kind of sorting this out and kind of dismissing it sometimes. But actually, I think if you can get to a space where you can kind of interrupt that thought process, take all of the emotion out of the food and then give yourself that space afterwards to then be like, do you know what? I feel really rubbish. I'm really struggling with this. I'm not OK with this. Then again, it helps you to kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other. And then you get the energy, obviously, from the food and your brain chemistry starts to change. So then that becomes so much easier in the long run. And then I think probably just one final one, I think, is giving giving yourself that space I guess, to talk to people when you're kind of really struggling with things. And that could be at meal times. It could be after the meal time, kind of could be, I don't know, around that, but actually creating an environment that really works for you. And I think for some people, you'll probably have people that you go for meals with that you find really comfortable and it's really safe to do. And you'll have people that the thought of going for a meal with, it doesn't feel safe because they don't understand you or they don't fully understand the eating disorder. And I think that's okay as like an initial point. But I do think that if you start by surrounding yourself with those safe people and then inviting in the less safe people over time, actually that will then help you to progress further forward. And then within all of that, you start to see all of these positives of recovery. I know for me, and I see this quite a lot on Instagram actually, and I really like it. People share like, oh, like I've put on this much weight, but actually I've gained this much from my life. Like this is a real positive of things. And I think sometimes we get so fixated on the weight aspect, even though eating disorders aren't really about that, that we lose sight of actually what they are about. So kind of giving yourself that space to look outside of that is key. I love that. Wow, that's so much to take away. Definitely. I completely agree with all of that. And that is something you talk about in your book is the idea of finding people that you can be vulnerable with and can also motivate you. So people who are finding it hard to reach out to somebody because, some, you know, sometimes there is that shame or the stigma around it and it's kind of scary to open up. Um, is there anything you can say for them? Yeah, I, I think I guess firstly, just to kind of emphasize um, just for those um, I I think the way that I, I guess, write in the book, but also kind of talk about my experience and things that I do, it's very kind of step-by-step step kind of thing. Yeah. But it has taken me a really, really long time to get to this point yeah. and to kind of start to have that kind of rewiring, re rewiring of my brain and everything like that. Um, and I think particularly with talking about people, I totally get how difficult it is. And honestly, like I still find it hard in places to be that really vulnerable with people around me. And there's a fear of judgment, there's a fear of failure, kind of fear of letting people down, like worrying, like we all have those kind of similar things probably. But the way that I do it 
is I normally start um, by maybe sending a text to someone saying, do you know, what? I don't feel great at the moment. Or I might send an email being like, actually, this is what's on my mind. Like, this is what's going on for me. And once I've done that, it then kind of opens up the kind of path to actually start talking about it. And the more you do that, the more you start to actually think like it becomes, you get more confidence in doing this and you do it again and again and again, and then it becomes much easier. Um, and I do also think the more we do that and show that vulnerability, actually, the more we create an environment where other people can do that too. And it's interesting, actually, just as like a practical example from schools, quite often when I'm in schools, I kind of will spend a whole day there and do like a bit of a job in it at lunchtime. And students that have come into a morning session will come back at lunchtime and be like, oh my goodness, like I just told my friend that I had this kind of issue with food or that I'm thinking about this all the time, or I'm feeling guilty when I eat. And it turns out that like someone else is also struggling with that. And I do think that like, there are a lot of stuff that we all have in common. And unless we start sharing it, we're not gonna realize that. So you end up building kind of this much tighter support network as well. And I, I guess I know it's really scary and it's hard and there's all this fear wrapped up in talking about things, but I can 100% firsthand say that actually, the more we find those people kind of to do that with and surround ourselves with, actually the easier it then is to navigate life and then you're bringing the eating disorder behaviors out into the open out into the light and then you've got more chance of actually kind of shifting that thinking and healing love that it's so true isn't it and I think sometimes people think in schools that if they start talking about these issues that issues are going to be created that weren't already there but actually it is that so many children young people adults have got these thoughts and by talking about it it does make you feel more supported because other people are kind of feeling the same so also on the flip side in your book um in your acknowledgements you spoke about your husband and how supportive he's been in terms of listening to your statistics by the way there's mm -hmm. so many interesting statistics throughout <laughs> the book it's shocking how much mental health is really an issue at the moment um but yeah just how much he's supported you as well in your recovery so on the flip side for somebody who's got a loved one who is suffering from an eating disorder how can they support them best because i think it's such a tough one because you love them so much you care about them so much and then you want you want to push them just the right amount it's it can be hard yeah and it, and it is and I think we don't always I, we don't always get it right here um and sometimes we'll have arguments about it and he might challenge me too much and then I get frustrated um and so we have definitely had to learn to deal with it but I think the first thing is is obviously working out what that support looks like for them like they're not the entire eating disorder like they're still in there like they're still the person so actually not just fixating on the eating disorder is really really key um, for me, it was really important to kind of create happy memories. So we go traveling a lot, but anything like that, to kind of create those memories that are outside of the eating disorder. They act as a bit of a motivation, but they also take the person out of their head as well. I think a big thing for me was learning how he could support me through challenging myself. And the way we did that was just really practical. So at the start of, at the start of every month, we'd write a list of five foods that I was gonna challenge myself with over that month long period. Um, and then we'd kind of work our way through them. I'd quite often spend like an hour afterwards kind of dissecting it and talking about it. And then we'd try the food again and we'd keep it up. And actually having him call me out on that when I hadn't done it enough was kind of annoying in places, but also really, really helpful, like having that accountability. So I think the accountability again is key and it's working out kind of how much you wanna do that and how much they need that support within it. I think as well, like not taking things personally. I know like, it's so hard when you have an eating disorder sometimes because you project a lot of it onto your body and then you feel really awful in what you look like. But it's important that kind of other halves don't take that personally and think they're doing a bad job because it's not on them. It's about us and it's about the fact we have a mental health issue um, as well. And I think the other thing that 
I actually was thinking about the other day and um, I wrote something about this actually um, on Instagram and I'm aware that not everyone finds it helpful, but depending on kind of family dynamics and stuff, for me, it was always really helpful for him to kind of set boundaries for me. So like if we were going out for dinner with his family or with certain, some of his friends, like actually if there was likely to be conversations around food and calories and kind of dieting, then actually he would kind of preempt that and make sure people knew not to do it beforehand. Or if people did start doing it, he'd kind of be really hyper aware that it was probably having an impact on me. So he changed the subject and kind of moved that on. So I think again, that can be really, really helpful. Um, and then finally, just like look after yourselves in it. I think like you said, like when you're supporting someone with an eating disorder, it can feel really, really hard work and it's worrying, it can feel relentless, particularly if you don't fully understand it, which isn't on anyone. It's If you've not been through it, I think it's hard to understand it. But actually there are practical things that you can do to also get that support for yourself. So I think kind of making sure you have that space too is always key. Yeah, definitely. There's so many really good tips there. And it sounds like your husband is doing such an amazing job of supporting you, which is amazing. I, I really read it really resonates with me because um, my recovery journey started when I got married as well. So my husband really supported me and it was just, yeah, nudging you just the right amount. Totally understand when you sometimes you feel you're being pushed a little bit too much too quick. Um, but you need that you need somebody to kind of encourage you and believe that you can do it. Um, and also to sit there and eat that food with you is so nice to have somebody that you're not just kind of going through that process alone. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think that with meals quite a lot, like particularly when we go traveling and stuff, if it's or just out for dinner, like if I'm finding the meal hard, actually having that kind of focus away from it and thinking about the memories you're creating and not the food, or even like at the moment, having someone who, you know, will go into a restaurant and ask for a menu with no calories on. So you don't have to do that yourself. It's all of those little things that seem really little, but are actually really massive things for the individual. And I think, yeah, that just learning how to do that is, it's hard, but it's worth doing. Yeah. How is that? How are you finding that seeing the calories on menus at the moment? Do you think that's impacted a lot of people over here in the UK? Because we don't have that in Dubai. Um, but I know that this is a new thing. I think April it came in, right? Yeah. 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 I think firstly, it's just infuriated me constantly because <laughs> I just can't get my head around why they think it's a good idea. Um, but it has, I've been inundated with people who are finding it really hard and it's really sad. And I think it really hit home for me when I went um, out for coffee and cake a couple of weeks ago with my nephew and we got a kid's menu and they had all the calories on the kid's menus. And you're like, how is that okay? Like that is just not acceptable at all. Shocking. I know. And I was just like, and he didn't really look at it, but I was kind of like, and loads of children will pre get preoccupied with that. We'll look at it. We'll find it really difficult. Um, and so I think for me, I've, I've actually been quite lucky because I've managed to avoid going to any restaurants with the calories in. Um, I don't know how I've managed that, but I just have. Um, the one restaurant that we did go to, uh, my one of my friends, Lauren, kind of met, rung the restaurant ahead and was like, we can't have calories on our menu. Um, so that was really helpful, actually. What a great friend. Yeah, it was really good. I think the hard, the, I think the hardest thing for me has been when you walk into a cafe and it might say like adults need to have X amount of calories per day, but I'm able to be really rational with myself and to have those mantras and not find it triggering. But I know there will be millions who are finding it triggering and people who maybe haven't ever thought about a calorie who are now thinking about calories. And actually even my mum, bless her, she obviously understands eating disorders because of me, but she went out for dinner the other week with my brother 
And both of them kind of second guess what they were having, even though they've not got an unhealthy relationship with food. And my mum was like, it's really, really bad. I was like, yeah, I know it is. It's like, you're finally listening. <laughs> but like, even the general population are finding it hard. So it's kind of like, it just feels in that sense, like just, it's just a minefield. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds really, really tough. And in terms of now, obviously, you've got Joshua and the world that he's kind of being born into. Have you thought about how you're going to kind of keep him safe from all of these things? I know, like, because I'm really conscious and I know Megat's as well. We're really conscious having kids of our own that making sure there's really positive messages around food and movement um, with them growing up. And I think if you've struggled with an eating disorder, I think you're hyper aware. I think you actually do more to like safeguard your children than people who haven't suffered because you know how comments can be kind of twisted and changed. Um, so yeah, have you thought about that or is it a bit too early to be thinking about that now? <laughs> no, I have thought about it quite a lot actually. Um, and also had the other fear, like how do you feed a child when you weren't able to feed yourself? Um, yeah. Just my new worry on Monday randomly. One of those, yeah. A worry that I don't need to even worry about for like the next six months. But, I know. We, um, we like to pre-plan, don't we? It's like our personality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I have thought about it. And I think a lot of it, I think for me, will be like, like, like not labeling foods as good and bad, trying to kind of get that healthy relationship with food and having kind of all types of food. I think I'm very lucky because my husband is probably like one of the only people I know who lifts like literally just intuitively eats and amazing. like has an amazingly healthy relationship with food and exercise so I think I'm hoping that Joshua kind of leads after that and that he'll obviously be around to be really helpful within that but but it's hard and I think it's really hard because it's just plastered everywhere in society that they're going to come up against it so it's like in those situations what can we do to give them that resilience and maybe even the kind of responses to say when their friends start talking about it at school like how can we empower them to be bold and speak up about stuff yeah and I definitely think you're going to be supporting your son to do that because you're such a strong voice and I think he's hopefully going to take after you for that so in terms of the future for you hope personally and professionally what do you see happening in the future in terms of your own recovery and have you got anything you know your sights set on anything you know going to Downing Street again or um yeah anything in that way um yeah so at the moment I'm focusing well I'm going to take a couple of weeks a couple of weeks off over the summer kind of properly um and then after that uh yeah kind of go back into schools again and start doing a lot of that work and like keep doing the campaigning work I think now we've got a new prime minister in the UK coming into kind of uh leadership at some point in the autumn I'll do a lot of preparation around that to try and make sure that we're set up in a like a way to tackle eating disorders properly um and then I guess more personally like from a recovery perspective I I'm in a phase at the moment where I feel slightly frustrated at myself that I'm not fully recovered and things like that so putting a lot of pressure on myself and arguably I'd say not I'm probably putting too much pressure on myself so I need to try and shift some of that yeah. um but I think also using it as a real drive to be like actually I really want to be well and so one thing um we are doing so we're going to take two months off both myself and my husband um and go traveling after Christmas okay. and I'm hoping again that that will be another driving force and like another kind of motivation to kind of do something like that again where I, I hopefully will kind of relax even more so yeah kind of just keeping working on things I think and being disciplined with myself to do that even if it's hard 
Oh, that's so lovely. I think traveling is so good for getting you out of like your routines and opening your mind and seeing the bigger picture. If you come to Dubai, make sure you give us a ring. But yeah, no, I think, you know, you're just so self-aware, I think. So any aspect of your eating disorder that's still there, you're just tackling. You're just not letting anything be left behind. So yeah, definitely be compassionate and kind with yourself because you're doing so, so well. And you're going to get there because you've got that drive to do it. Um, so thank you so much for talking to us. It's been amazing. Can I just ask, we usually end the podcast by um, asking you to share either a, like a mantra or a tip um, and a resource for our listeners, if that's okay. Good question. Um, so I guess resource wise, um, I'd probably pick um, a carer's one, um, which is probably slightly different, um, but we'll also, can also pick a more new eating disorder one. So the carer's one um, is from actually an organization called Feast. Um, and they do like a 30 day um, kind of educational course for carers who are newly embedded into eating disorders. So we definitely kind of recommend looking at that if you are caring for someone. And it's not, I think it's really important to remember with carers, it's not like just parents. I think quite often we have that image, but like our partners care for us as well, to some extent. I hate saying that, but they do. No, no, yeah, true. And we care for them. Yeah, so it's like yeah. the whole educational thing is really key um, as well. And then I think, uh a mantra from me or a tip I guess a mantra or a tip whichever way you do it is so something that's really helped in my recovery and particularly in relation to kind of the body aspect is getting into a space where I can predict how my brain is going to respond in certain situations and how the eating disorder is going to respond in certain situations so I know now that when I go into like a space where there's heightened stress, where maybe there's loads of emotions, where there's maybe difficult relationships, I will have bad body image that day and my brain will be like in commotion with the eating disorder doing its absolute best to try and pull me back in. So actually, because I'm able to prepare for that, I'm then able to think actually, how will my well voice respond in that situation? So I do think that for me, that's been a massive, yeah, like a massive help in my recovery. And it also then helps you to not feel like everyone has to understand what's going on because you have that kind of confidence and that insight into yourself that actually this is what's going to happen this is how I'm going to respond and then obviously giving yourself that space afterwards to do that as well is, is really really key um, and then I think the other like I guess from another resource perspective from like someone with an eating disorder um, I guess an organization that I really like is First Steps Eating Disorders and they do a lot of kind of early intervention stuff. They do a lot of kind of speaking up around eating disorders. They share a lot of stories. And I think if you're struggling with an eating disorder and you're finding, I don't know, whether you're finding social media really difficult to navigate, it might be that you look at organizations like that where there are blogs out there, where there are places you can go and get that additional support because it isn't, it isn't weak to get that support. It can be really useful. And if you hear people's stories, it then also empowers you and gives you that chance to relate to them. And then it might help you kind of move further forward too. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Hope. Wow, what valuable resources there are out there. I've never heard of the carers um, training as well. That's really fantastic. Yeah, they're quite good. I think they're, yeah, they're based actually all over the world. They've also got a 24-7 helpline. Wow. Um, yeah, which is really good. I sound like I'm on commission for them and I'm not. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really, I just think that carer support is really lacking a lot of the time. I agree. Totally. Yeah, completely agree. Hope, thank you so much. You enjoy cuddles with Joshua. Oh my gosh, he was quiet the whole time. I know I feel like yeah good, good baby good baby no, I'm like quite shocked yesterday I was on a call and he literally was like oh it was so awful he was like screaming and then I was like 
turned my camera off and was like standing up, like bobbing up and down. Like it was would so have been me. This is why I'm amazed. That is exactly <laughs> what I would have been with mine. So I'm like, wow, he's just sleeping there on your chest. <laughs> the first time it's happened like this. So, <laughs> But you're doing so good. You're an amazing mum. And yeah, thank you for everything you're doing and for talking to us today. No, thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Hope. Thank you for listening to the Rewired podcast. And thank you to Tallulah Self, our fabulous podcast editor and producer, whose details can be found in the show notes. You can find me, Meg, on Instagram at Megzi underscore recovery. And me, Sophia, at Sophia underscore ED recovery coach. We will use this space to share some of the things which have helped us in our own recoveries, but none of it should be taken as medical advice. If you're struggling, please seek help from a professional. See you on the next episode.